Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. Tim Ross is a comedian and design nerd. He's leapt from the entertainment industry into the design world with a fresh perspective, dry humour and a love for mid-century Australian design. His Man About the House talks sell out in minutes and his modernista Instagram taps into our nostalgia for simpler times. Hot summer afternoons, a paddle pop after school and trips in the family Datsun. Tim keeps it real. He knows how to put people at ease and how to make any talk feel like a conversation, like you've known him forever. Find out how to use memory and stories to communicate ideas, plus Tim's practical tips for public speaking, TV and radio. I'm chatting with Tim in his tiny, crowded office in Sydney's Hunters Hill. It's a sunny morning and we're wedged in amongst bookshelves and memorabilia, hoping the next-door neighbour doesn't start up his power tools. My name's Tim Ross, um, so I'm a comedian who's, I suppose, best described, well, I'd describe myself now as uh, a design nerd. I used to call myself an architecture tragic, which sort of resonated with some people, but it doesn't make any sense overseas. It's, you know, the cricket tragic thing is a very Australian term, and my interest is not just in architecture, so I think design nerd sort of works. And I had someone fire up at me and go, do you have any qualifications for being a design nerd? And I went, no, because I'd be a designer then. Um, so if you're a design nerd, it sort of means you like stuff and you're into it. So I think that sort of sums that up, doesn't it? And uh, my interest is in, you know, so broad with this stuff. But I essentially like creative processes in all sorts of things. And over the last four, I think it's been four years now when I've been pretty much doing this full time, which is a, a variety of different things from doing exhibitions, working live, public speaking, making television shows or films um, about design plus history. Um, I'm deeply interested in Australian history um, and design history. And so the, it's, a, it's a personal journey that um, I just make people come along on the ride for. But I think most people understand it apart from, say, I reckon my sort of peer, entertainment industry peers. Some of them like it and understand it, and they see it as being a very grown-up, almost semi-retired thing to do. But the rest of them think it's absurd or don't understand it and don't want to understand it and, because it just doesn't sit in the parameters of how a stand-up comedian is supposed to work or perform. So, and for me... The sort of idea that you know, that sort of sits beneath everything is this idea that we should acknowledge design, we should understand that design makes us happy, that we should value design, um, and we should ele elevate it to a point where we we just give it a bit more respect, the respect that it deserves. And so that you see that in lots of different things that I do. So, um, and that's because I, it it generally makes me happy. And from, you know, we're sitting on these, this is a great example, sitting on these 1960s Featherston chairs, the Delmar setting. Um, 
and most people would have seen them in RSLs and they're in bloody your libraries at school and they're a perfect piece of functional Australian design. Their, their beauty is almost not apparent to you. You'd be sitting on it and going, well, they're, they're not as comfortable as they'd like to be because the foam's gone on them. But they pretty much sum up what I do, these chairs, because most people sort of look at them and don't really think anything of them. So they don't, wouldn't think, oh, you know, Grant Featherston designed these, because um, everyone thinks about Grant Featherston in terms of those contour chairs, the, the highly expensive and collectible yeah. things. But Grant's design um, ethos was great design should be available to all people. And I truly believe that as well. And they also believe that great design can solve all problems and save the world. And Mary Featherston, you know, when I told her I had these, her eyes lit up and she just went, oh, I love those chairs and I love that you love them. They're great design. They're working for you still. And I like the idea of stories that people don't, things people don't see or don't necessarily understand. It's the sort of the broader version of looking up when we talk about architecture, you know, it's like, oh, make sure you look up and take notice of things. But sometimes you look down or look deeper is just as important as well. When you stand up and give a talk, man, about the house mm. talk, how do you prepare for it? Tell mm. me a bit about your process. So everyone has, for public speaking, everyone has a different thing. My personal thing is I always like to start, make sure I get a, the first thing I want to do is get a laugh. And so once that happens, I relax, everyone relaxes. But, you know, I still, we talk a lot of the time in really intimate settings, which can be really confronting for us as performers. Um, I'm talking about Kit, who I do the music with. And I sometimes worry that you, you worry that, like everyone does, I worry that I'm boring people, that I'm not, I'm doing too much comedy, not enough architecture, I'm doing too much architecture, not enough comedy. Um, so quite often, since, particularly since I did the series of the ABC, Streets of Your Town, and people coming along think it's an architecture lecture and it's never been that. So there were times where I'll talk just about design, but that particular show, I don't. So it's trying to, you feel like you've got to keep everyone happy because they go, oh gosh, I, I thought it was going to be a bit more design or I was going to talk a lot more about the house. Um, sometimes it's really difficult to talk about a brand new house in terms of, well, you've seen it, you can go and talk to the architect about it. Um, I've been in it for two hours. Um, I'm not going to start talking about, you know, the roof trusses, and particularly with the owners there. So there's no, you can't be critical about it, but if you're in a house that's 60, 70 years old, you can talk about its leaks and its faults and, and there is more layers of history. So the room we're in at the moment, which is my office, the things that I like about it, it's an old bakery that was renovated in the late 1960s and it's got that sort of bagged white walls and mission brown stained type timber and it's very much of that time, a really interesting piece of, it's like, uh, you know, great Australian regional modernism. Um, and they were going to, the, the Nielsen Design Associates, who have been here for years and designed some great stuff, they walked in and they were going to put a, because um, it's got exposed timber beams, and, um, and they were going to, when they walked in, the, the owner was saying, oh, we're going to put some false ceilings underneath. And I went, no, 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 leave it. Yeah. Um, so it speaks to me in that way, but I like it in terms of where the, the history of it is. It's evocative. It reminds me of um, the way that terrace houses were transformed in the 1960s. And so there is a, a lovely nod to history. So for me, it makes it a very pleasant place to be in for that reason. I think that's just, I'm, as a comedian, you're constantly observing things because you've got to, you observe things to create stories and create jokes. And I observe design in the same way. Yeah. So I saw on, um, on your show, mm. Streets of Your Town, the talk you did at La Trobe, mm. and 
one thing I loved about it was that you were nervous. You were nervous before the talk. Can you remember that? Mm. How did you deal with nerves like that? And why were you so nervous for a talk like that? You've done lots um, of talks. I think I was a pretty ordinary student when I was at university. And the last time I'd been in that situation, I'd taken five years to finish my degree and I had my hat on. And, and it's a great honour um, to be asked to do the occasional address for graduating students. And we we're filming it for a TV show. And I, it was a talk I hadn't done before. Um, and I wanted to make it, I know how boring these things can be for parents and they've got to sit through all this shit of, you know, Darren nincompoop face, arts degree, and you know, 4,000 strangers get up and, you know, have an awkward photo. And I wanted to reference the university, I wanted to talk about my time there and I didn't want to, um, wasn't there to give one of those American style life changing speeches. Um, and I also wanted to sandwich some things in that we could use in this. <laughs> <laughs> TV show. Yeah, but I, you had a lot of goals to kick for yeah, that speech. There was a lot going on and, you know, and how my hat worked. But it was this moment where, and I think it was in the series, where you, you're going to get found out. Um, and it went well and I got some lovely emails from the academics. And that was nice, you know, someone had, had from the one of the, I think it was the English department or something, had, you know, went out of their way to email me, some professor, and said, oh, you know, it's one of the best speeches I'd seen done at the university up there with Don Watson's who and Don wrote all the speeches for Paul Keating so yeah. that was sort of nice. But how did you prepare for it? Did you write it out? Do you I write don't write things out? Things out no. I did write some things out because they needed to see it um, but I don't. Um, I just work on four or five really points. It's right. funny and then I think well, what am I going to do here? Um, sometimes now because I talk a lot I, I sometimes just talk off the cuff and what I'm interested in. But I just try and think of something that's sort of, there's always a take home in some way, or there's something that connects with people. And then, and, and how, can you, how can you make things relate to people? So I did, I, I had a lovely talk actually at RMIT for the design archives. And I was talking about a kettle designed by this guy called Barry Hudson for General Electric, I won a design award in 1974. The one that was there, was, it's orange. And I'm gonna talk about the kettle and talked about how you can feel it. And if I showed you a photo of this orange kettle, and you, if you visualise it, you can feel it in your hand. And it's also got a design fault because the steam comes up and can burn you. But you, you probably know the kettle I'm talking about. So, but that suddenly transports you to a whole bunch of different places in terms of the tactility of design and how it can re relate to memories and how important they are. And so this great Australian design kettle is part of, oh, that's me making some Milo or me making a cup of tea for mum or that was in a motel I once went to. And so that tends to work for people because uh, it works for me. And I think if it works for me, it's telling me a story about something. Um, and if you're 17, you'll still work it out or you'll ask someone about it. So um, a lot of the time my stuff is working for a certain age group, but it doesn't mean that they can't relate to it or experience it at all or find out things. But Barry's kids were there and wife was there in the audience. I didn't realise. But they're just so excited to hear someone talk about their father or their husband's design and in a different way rather than oh, won this award. Or how does, it, how does it affect our lives in terms of, you know, the romance of design in terms of memory and history? I love really, that. It's a really strong connection point. But you can't always do it with new things. But if you're talking about I remember seeing someone talk about creating the landscape, landscape architects, I can't remember her name, of the city one. We're at the Bicentennial Gardens in Sydney and she talked about how she'd bloody designed the thing. I think that's Lorna Harrison. Mm. And then you look at it 20, 30 years later and it's amazing. 
and the trees have grown. So it's not, that's cool. And if you think, you know, and then that's about kids running under that, or it's like, oh, I have a birthday party there, or, you know, if you, you sell green space in terms of what you can, people can, because everyone's about themselves, what, what can you experience there? But I just think that that's extraordinary. And we don't, we don't, we don't talk about those stories. I think that is, it's almost it, isn't it? Any architect or landscape architect talking about their work, you need to find that human yeah. experience for whoever you're talking to. And the sort of the placemaking stuff is a sales technique rather than something that resonates with people. I've seen some good stuff with placemaking, but a lot of the time it's it's a little nod to the past or, or um, sort of fake stuff. And then we can sort of feel it. It's like this, there's a... It's ridiculous. There's a Dan Murphy's up the road from where we are now, and it used to be an old theatre. They knocked the bloody thing down, built this sort of concrete rendered version that sort of looks like it, and then they have a couple of blown up pictures of what used to be here, like it's some sort of tribute. It's sort of like, oh, you know, it's like having a photo of someone you murdered <laughs> in your lounge room. It's like, oh, this, this is the person who used to live here that I killed. Um, it's sort of absurd, but that gets... That's that idea, like a, there's you know, another great example of it in Piermont in Sydney, there's an IGA supermarket that used to have um, the record company in it, um, Festival Records. All, the, all our greatest musicians recorded there. All these things had the most extraordinary deco interior. And I, and they ripped it all out, put a fucking IGA in it, and then same thing, they go, oh, here's some photos of what used to be here. I was like, wow. You know, that's not a tribute. That's bragging about something you ruined. And that's, and there's a falsity to that, I think. But if you were going back to that idea of how do you prep for things, you just got to do it and do it more. Um, you know, not, I, I always think, I think, I used to always say, if you don't need to show images, don't show images. What do you mean by that? PowerPoints. Like, oh. You're telling a story and you need to tell a story. Don't use them. But if you're talking about design, it's really sort of handy. But there can be a little crutch. But I see people all the time, you know, the senior management have had all this training and they all talk like they're doing a TED talk. It's so annoying. It's, like, it's uh, so annoying. It's like, done, and then it's like, stop, hands down. And then I got to this point. I decided I needed to do something different in my life. And, you know, and then it, they tie everything up in a bow. And it's like, Ugh, if I have to see this... I've seen them all doing corporates where there's this particular couple who do this revolting talk about how they did something that everyone goes, oh, wow, that's amazing how you did that. And there's a point where, you know, there's some vision of one of them crying when they were in a somewhere or other and they didn't think they could go on. And I'd seen the guy walk on stage on 10 different occasions when she stops and the music starts and he comes up gives her a bit of a cuddle and she fakes the tears then walks off stage and he goes, now this is what happened to me now. And it's like, oh my God. So that, but for the general public, they love that shit. Well, people do love they TED Talks. They love it. They do, but they're but so... It's so fake. Formulaic. Yeah. And, you know, they don't um and ah and they make sure they, when do you take the ums and ahs out of everything? It's a debater skill. And I find it so dull. Yes, okay. And I've, I've heard people on the radio who you can hear what they do and they just pause. So then instead of going, um, da, they'll go, like, oh, 
Come on, get the defibrillators out. Come on, talk. Um, yeah, I think we all like, especially in this country, we like every we like people to speak naturally. I think everybody's really looking for that. You just mm. want to know, oh, this person's real. I can connect with you. And so, the best people are the ones who surprise you. Know, it's what you think about when you're at a wedding or something, and the the sort of the bumbling sort of slightly pissed brother-in-law or dad gets up gets one joke away and then he's amazing and everyone thinks oh he's not the one who's going to do the best speech and they end up speaking from the heart or just being generally funny um and funny's not about jokes funny's about being self-deprecating being honest um feeling comfortable and but that's also putting everyone at ease and it's like okay and then you go okay here we are and we're going to talk about this but if you talk from the heart why you like things you know it's always engaging it is, isn't it? Yeah. And just because people are looking out the window doesn't mean they're not listening. No one can look at you the whole time. People feel really uncomfortable about it. So people worry too much, and I do it too. You look around going, oh, shit, am I losing these people? But you really know when they're losing people. When you're not really losing anyone until everyone's talking. And right. Yeah, <laughs> the class walking, is out of control. Or they're, or they're walking <laughs> out, you know. Um, there's, some, there's some public speaking situations which is, you know, you'll never win at, and you just have to live with that. Have you had ones like that? Yeah, like corporates where people just won't, you know, like an awards night where people just won't listen to anyone, whether it's the president of the industry association or something like that. How do you deal with that? I plough on. Sometimes you can sort of demand it. But I don't, for me, I don't care because it's not my crowd. So like I say, look, if you want to talk while I'm talking, I don't give a shit. But if, you know, such and such has won the Hall of Fame award, I'm not going to bring them up on stage until you've been you're quiet. Right. It's not fair. So. Yeah. That's a facilitator's role, right? Yeah. So, I mean, do you do much of that too, emceeing mm. and facilitating? Um, what makes a good MC? You've got to listen, especially if you're facilitating is to listen and not do too much. Um, and it really is. Sometimes it's just about making sure that someone comes on stage and the room's quiet. And you don't have to do that with funny. You just talk until they shut up. It's actually filling the space. Everyone at a certain stage will just stop and then you just wait. Or you stand at the lectern and, you, you know, you wait for everyone to shut up or... Someone or, or someone else will ding, ding, ding on your behalf. And it doesn't mean you're weak. It's just like you take your time. They're there. They're paid for whatever. They'll get there. And then you do the right thing by making sure that the people are, you know, well prepared. And what else would you do? Keep people's intros short. No one really cares about it. Only, only people who are truly egomaniacs get worried about their intros and getting their whole CV in. Nothing tires everyone when you sit in Someone has to sit there and go, oh. Yeah. Gareth Ninkenpoop was finished university in 1724 and he did this and did that and did that. He's been on the member of the board and blah, 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 blah. And by the time you get to it, you know, oh, you know Gary Ninkenpoop. <laughs> it's like two lines is fine, three lines. So I think that's pretty good advice. Keep it short. Keep it short. And then this idea that you have to have the right questions or we've prepped all the questions and we're going to get through them all. You know, questions should be a guide just so you feel like you've got something to fall back on and I've been involved in so many discussion points that have been badly thought out and the questions have been tapped out as a list of the last things to do if you are listening you'll naturally know what questions to ask I've got a friend right a landscape architect who you know just did her first tv spot this Mm. year and I'd love to know what tips you'd give somebody like that never been on tv before what, yeah, what did you I mean, learn? it's so hard. I mean, it's really hard and you can only do it by doing it, being yourself. And that's really hard. Everyone says, oh, you just be yourself. And like, oh, even I 
struggle with being the self or your version of that is. And, once, and then you've got to think, I don't know, never look at yourself. Like this whole idea that you can learn from looking at yourself, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, never look at yourself on camera. But there's more chances to practice now. So if you're doing stuff and you're making things for your work, you know, shit on an iPhone, get the young person in the, in the office to cut it up, and then you'll get better at it. So when those times for those bigger things happen, you'll be great at it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, simplicity of language is really important. And what about radio? So, I mean, my first experience of... Um wasn't radio, but it was a teleconference with a client on a project. They were in Broken Hill. I was mm. in Sydney. And I was talking into this, you know, little thing that looks like a spaceship, the mm. teleconference thing. And um, I was putting so much into my voice. I was describing the project. I was almost I was this close to the machine. You know, is radio a bit like that? Do you have to put stuff into your voice because people can't see your face? Or no, I think it's just a normal conversation. I was just thinking about teleconferences and how unsatisfactory they are. You know, someone's at the back. I've just got to stop you there. Um, it's uh, Gary Dinkapoop here. Sorry, just can I just um, get in here for a moment? And then, you know, you can hear them leaning in and then, you know, the amount of times I've been on them and just, you know, you just put the phone down and then you walk away or someone's like puts it on pause and they go, I'm on a conference call. Um, Boy, talk about ineffectual business. I've got a friend who didn't say anything in one meeting and was recorded as an apology. So he was... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> this didn't even know he was there. of it all, isn't it? <laughs> the absurdity of it all. So, yeah, oh. multiple people on calls. Yeah. Even when you're all on a different line, you know, you always feel like because someone's not involved, they're sitting there just judging, waiting to go... Yeah, I've been listening and the next thing I'm going to say is going to be very judgmental or they think you're, you know, you're disinterested because you're not saying anything. The oh. judgmental silence. Judgment, yeah. You're like, okay, that was great. Oh, then they wind the person in the back. Oh, that was great. Okay, we're going to finish this up now. Thanks, guys. You know, beep, beep, beep. And then the sound of everyone leaving a conference call. Yeah, yeah. Bye, bye. Bye. And you've been doing more radio things too, haven't you? Like podcasts and interviews. Yeah, I did, I did some audio podcasts for my exhibition Design Nation at the Powerhouse Museum, which was fun. So in, in terms of, and my challenge for that was to make them short and bite-sized and really how can we get little bits of design history in two to three minutes. So you, and you interviewed some famous designers for that? Yeah, a bunch of people that were still alive and Philip Adams to talk about the Life Be In It campaign and um, Ken Doan and... Yeah, they were all great, and they'll become a broader, longer podcast. But in this term, they were really short and punchy ones, which work really well. What's your kind of interview style? Do you go with any prep, or do you? Mm-hmm. To be honest, I'm not. I, it depends on who they are. Yeah. You know, I've prepped with an inch of my life for all sorts of people. I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to people about things that I'm interested in now. So I'm doing this podcast series where I'm talking to film people who make films or in films. And so I chatted to Sam Neill the other day and, you know, I had a little look at his back catalogue of stuff, but I wanted to hear about him, his career and how he tells it. And I don't want to be in there, but what happened when you, after you finished doing, you know, Jurassic Park and you went on to such and such, he can tell me that. So, you know, this fail to prepare to fail, fail to prepare rubbish, you know, like sometimes it's like you can prep and still fail constantly. So do you embrace times when you've failed or have yeah, there been times? Yeah, heaps of times. Yeah. What's one of those? Um, I've done TV shows that haven't worked. I've certainly done live shows that haven't worked. Um, How do you pull up after that? Oh, 
we'll just get back on the bike and then you go on. Yeah, I had a really, I did a not very good TV show that I was just hosting and I woke up one day and I'd been filming, been filming in the, down in Wollongong in this theatre and I woke up in this terrible motel. Um, I think, was, and the headline, I went on, got online, oh, I'll just check the news. And the front page of the Daily Telegraph online was a photo of me and the headline was, is this the worst television show ever? Oh, uh, ooh, okay. Ouch. Oh, there's a few other than that. Let's put Love Boat above me, please. It's harder when you create something that doesn't work. If you're part of it, you go, okay, I can do that. But when you put everything into something that failed, that's the toughest one. Because you spend years unpacking why it went wrong. And you learn from that. I had another one of a series that didn't work, or not as well as I'd like it to have worked. And then I had sort of three years of thinking about it. And so when we went back to make another one, I, everything I learned from the failure, we pretty much fixed up in the second one. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty good at learning from my mistakes. I haven't had any big ones recently, but I'm sure there's another one around the corner. Is there anything more that you wanted to talk about? Kit and I have been talking about starting a Hollow Notes tribute band, but that's probably a bit off topic for you guys. <laughs> no, I'd be very interested in that. <laughs> no, it's about, as, it's about as far as we've gone. The one thing I would love to see is this idea of the House of Tomorrow. And we do know that there's things that still excite people and excite the media is this idea of how we live in the future. And and that's what I would love to see. If there was one thing I think architects could be doing a better job of or the industry could do a better job of is this idea of, well, why don't we build a house of tomorrow and people can come and see it's in, it's in somewhere. And it suddenly starts a conversation. And mm. it doesn't have to be so futuristic. It looks like Disneyland's version of it. But it should challenge how we live and why we should live. And so if you move the conversations outside of how the industry should be talking about it but you put it into the sphere of where people are, I think it's much more successful. And things that ignite people's imagination, children's imagination. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tim, for being on Dig Beneath Design. We did some digging here, didn't we? Did some good digging, got some dig, good dirt. Dig, dig, dig. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you. Or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash Dig Beneath Design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunea Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. <laughs>